if I may, I just, I, I want to jump in and I've just got, I really, I really only have two things that I want to say, two, two things that I really want to say this morning. I want to share with you how the passage just uniquely struck me this week. And, and, and I'll just be open with you. I'll just be open with you. And at the end, I'm just going to ask permission to be a little vulnerable with you at the end. But I just, the two things I want to say today is that Jesus is a source of endless revelation and endless surprise. And every single new revelation about Jesus carries in it a new calling of who we must become of who we are being shaped to be. The other day, uh, a couple weeks ago, I went to Riverview um, and I experienced a, 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 a failed Craigslist deal. I won't talk about it. It's just me and my Craigslist meanderings, whatever. Um, I just I, I drove all the way to Riverview, met a guy at a gas station, and the I'll just say the item was not as described, it was not as advertised, and I decided I'll pass, man, thanks for meeting me, no thanks. And I was very angry that I wasted a drive all the way to Riverview just for nothing. I was just literally going to drive home. And I just, in me, I just have this really high value for like, um, like using everything. So, uh, you know, you, I don't own any clothes I don't wear. Um, I try to only own four pairs of shoes. We try to go through all the food in our fridge before we shop, this kind of thing. So I drive to Riverview and there, and it's a wasted thing. And I just feel like I have to make this drive worth it. I can't waste this drive, the miles, the gas. Oh my gosh. I can't, the, the depreciation on my vehicle over the last 30 minutes. I have to make this worth something. So I decided, I had my bag on me, and I decided I'll just go find somewhere cool in Riverview to work, like a little adventure, a little exploring. And I just typed in Yelp, like coffee shop, because I, I have a problem with caffeine, and I found, I found there's a foundation coffee shop in Riverview. And I never knew this. I thought Foundation was just this thing on Franklin. There's just one of them. It's a nice, cool place or whatever. And I found out that the, the, the original Foundation coffee shop is in Riverview. And I, so I drive there, and I'm expecting this cool, like, elaborate coffee shop. And it's literally just like this outdoor seating area with a little trailer that they converted into a coffee shop. And I'm like, I'm like, this is, at first I was like, am I in the right place? Is this the right thing? Is this just some guy's house? Am I, like, pulling up into some guy's yard? Because there's no parking lot. It's just grass. And I was just like, I don't know what's happening here. And it ended up being amazing. It was a great, like, it was sunny outside. It was a great day to be outside. It happened to be a great day to be outside. I was sitting at this table. I was just doing a little reading and writing, and I saw across the seating area on the other side, there was a guy sitting at his computer working, and he had this stack of books. And I could see the, the, the writing on the stack of books, and the one he was reading was by A.W. Tozer. And then in the stack, there was like... Um, Gosh, there was R.C. Sproul's, and there was like J.I. Packer, and there was just all these like really thick kind of Christian meaty books, like theological books. I mean, this guy was getting into it. So I just, I looked at the observation, and I just thought, this guy's either like a really committed follower of Jesus, just loves to read, or he's in some kind of ministry. Like he's either a pastor, or he's like, in, or, or studying in seminary or something. And I'm going to let you know something that I do, and please don't judge me. Please don't judge me. When I am in situations where I see, like, where I think I see someone professionally in ministry, but I don't know who they are, and especially in places where I almost never visit, so they're, they're like, never going to see me again, I approach them and pretend as if I'm not a believer and just see what happens. This is a thing I do. 
I promise you, like, by the end of the conversation, I, I tell them, like, that, that, like I'm, a, I'm in ministry. I just wanted to, like, this was good. This was fun. We had fun. I had fun. Come on. It's safe. We're in a safe place. So I approached this guy, and I just said, what are you, some kind of pastor? Because this is my impression of a non-Christian. This is what non-Christians do, right? So I just tried to approach him, like, really cool, like, whatever, like, hey, what are you, some kind of pastor or something? And... And he was like, he was like, uh, I'm I'm a, I'm an associate pastor at a church up in Lutz, like a reformed church up in Lutz. And um, he was studying. He was in seminary, and that's what he was doing. He was like working on papers and stuff. And I was like, cool, man, cool, cool. cool. <laughs> and uh, and he he's like, hey, to take a seat, like like let's we should we should you know grab some coffee or whatever. And I was like, okay. And I went and I got my stuff. I came over. And um, we just started like, he just started, he, he, he started just asking me, do, do you believe in, where are you at? Where do you live? You know, what do you do? And then eventually he was just like, what, what, what do you think about God? What do you, um, and by the way, the what do you do question, I was like, I'm, I work with a nonprofit. <laughs> it's true. It's true, guys. It's true. So uh, I'm, he's, like, he's like, what do you think about God? He starts asking me, kind of trying to get into a spiritual discussion, which I really appreciated. I was like, this is really good. This is great. And um, I was just like, he, I, I was like, yeah, I, I, I think I'm a Christian. I really like Jesus. And I just left it very open, very, very like general, very bland. I just wanted to see what he was going to do with it. And um, he immediately, like no, no more questions, no more reactions, nothing. He immediately, for 20 minutes, 20 whole minutes, took me through the whole Bible explaining to me the theology of predestination. Like from the front to the back. He like took. He was like, "Well, that's very interesting that you that you like Jesus and that you're you know of of uh, you think you're a Christian. That's great. And and have you heard about predestination? I was like, "Oh, that's interesting. I've never heard of that." And he's he just takes me. He takes me from the beginning, and he walks me through like a couple places in the Old Testament, and then we see a couple lines in Luke, a couple lines in John. He takes me to Romans nine, of course, and then he takes me to like Ephesians one and two and all this stuff. And he gets done making this like big case for predestination theology, and he's like, he's like, "So what do you think?" And I was like. This was fascinating. So think, I'm going to think about this. I'm going to think more about this. And he said to me, I mean, when he left, I had to write it down because I was so like shocked by it. He said to me, if you don't understand these deeper truths about the nature of God, how could you possibly be saved? If this is like the vehicle through which God saves, how can you expect to be saved if you don't even know? the vehicle through which God saves people. And listen, uh, I, I don't even necessarily have a problem with that theology. I, I actually think there's some beautiful things about like Reformed theology, predestination ideas, that kind of thing. My problem with, was with the idea that you have to understand all of this theological revelation at the front door into the kingdom of God. Some kind of prerequisite or requirement. There is this theological term that I want to wrestle with a little bit this morning called progressive revelation. And it's theological proper understanding. It's this idea that God chose to reveal himself and chose to reveal his purposes and his plan for redemption to us progressively, not all at once. He didn't like, like at the very beginning or at, or at one certain time just lay on us the fullness of who he is, like an understanding of who he is, the fullness of the understanding of like his plan for redemption, but it was, it was revealed to us over time. It was revealed to us progressively. 
And a corollary to that theological proper understanding is to, is to be able to see, to look at the ministry of Jesus, to look at the interaction, uh, interactions of Jesus with people, and to see progressive revelation in the way that Jesus deals with people, in the way that de- Jesus deals with his disciples, walks with his disciples. Here we are not nine chapters into the book of Luke, six chapters into Jesus' ministry, four chapters into the disciples' journey, and I just wanted to give you a little recap of what the disciples so far have seen, heard, and known about Jesus. John the Baptist foreshadowed him. The heavens opened for him. A dove descended on him. The voice of the Father thundered blessing over him. Forty days of hunger couldn't shake him. The devil could not tempt him. The scriptures have been fulfilled by him. A crowd of Nazarenes could not dispose of him. The crowds were inspired, complex, challenged, and enraged by him. The religious were exposed by him. The educated were outsmarted by him. Countless times sickness had to obey him. A host of demons were cast out by him. Two times nature itself had to surrender to him, and on two occasions even death was undone by him. And at this point, after seeing and hearing and knowing and experiencing all that with Jesus, in this moment, this moment is the first time any disciple has made a direct claim at his messianic identity or even his divine nature. The first time, the first time. And for me, this story has really nothing to do with the wisdom or the courage of Peter. The knowledge of Peter. The, 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 the boldness of Peter to exclaim, to say maybe what everybody else was already thinking. But the story is all about, has everything to do with the patience of Jesus. He is so patient with us, so patient with us. To let us, come, let us know him, let us receive revelation from him at the pace in which we can even understand it or take it or receive it. And even when we reject it, even when we see incredible things in our lives and then weeks later we like totally reject the characteristics about him that we've already seen, known, and heard. He's still patient with us. He still walks alongside us. I mean, why would he even need to ask this question? And even the answer, God's Messiah, is, like we said, true. It's true. It's so true, but incomplete. I love, I love kids. I love babies. You know, maybe when mine turns, like, I don't know, I don't know what age, like, kids and babies, like, where the cutoff lines are or whatever, but maybe there will be a time when I won't like them, but I just really love kids and babies. I don't particularly like holding other people's babies or kissing other people's babies, and I actually don't know if people like people doing that to their babies anymore. <laughs> There's somebody who's holding a, kissing a baby over here now. <laughs> Um, but my, I only really have two tools in the toolbox when I'm around babies. It's, it's baby language and peekaboo. Those are my two go-to. It's just like my immediate, involuntary, natural interactions with babies. Is, is baby noises, baby language, baby sounds, and peekaboo. I, I, I am obsessed with playing peekaboo with kids. I, I played peekaboo probably four or five times a day with Landon when he used to enjoy peekaboo. We've upgraded to hide and seek now. It's very similar. Rules are a little different, but, but he no longer, I think, enjoys peekaboo. I think I love playing peekaboo because it puts on display the capacity for children to discover the unknown, to learn 
to have their minds blown, to develop. I love the facial expressions of kids. When you, anytime you play, I'll just give you a little peekaboo tutorial if you've never done this before. When you, when you put your face, your, your hands over your face, you have to crack between your pinky and your ring finger so that you can see them. If you can't see them, it ruins the game. There's no point in playing, really. Uh, you have to be able to see them. The best place is right here in this little crevice. You put your, and the moment you put like, like, you know, a, a pretty early middle level infant, I don't know, I don't know ages or whatever, but as soon as you put your hand over your face, they're, they're immediately like, what just, what just happened? He totally disappeared. Where did he go? And then, and they're like shocked and a little bit afraid and, and not sure what's happening. And then you pull it away and they're like, oh my, thank goodness you're here. I had no idea where you went. Thank goodness. Oh my gosh. You terrified me. And then you put it back on. They're like, oh my gosh, oh my gosh, oh my gosh, oh my gosh. Where are they? Where did they go? And sometimes if like a parent is around, like especially the mother, they'll turn to look at the mom like, are you seeing this? Are you seeing what's happening here? Are you, am I the only one? Are you with me? Professor James Russell is, a, is a, a professor at Cambridge, and he actually did some research, some like PhD professional level research on peekaboo. <laughs> I want that job. Give me that job. His intent was studying the incremental discovery of object permanence in infants. I mean, my, most of you probably know, like, peekaboo itself is an example of, of the lack of object permanence in early infants. They don't, they don't have any understanding of the, of the permanence of things. So when you disappear, especially behind something, you no longer exist. There, there's no understanding that you're still there, you're just hiding. And there's actually uh, uh, even, even deeper a little bit information about how kids, infants perceive personality and personhood and, and people and interactions through the eyes. So even when you hide your eyes, there, there, there's some people who would speculate they don't think you're there anymore. They don't know you're there anymore. This is the development of object permanence. And what Russell did, what James Russell did, was this experiment where he, he found this, he, he kind of got this collection of kids um, that were later in infancy. They were getting toward the age where you would traditionally develop object permanence. And peekaboo just isn't as, as shocking and fun anymore. I mean, you can still play, but it's not like totally melting their world apart. And he gets all these kids together and he gets them in a room. And what he was trying to do the, the goal of his research was trying to figure out, can you teach a child object permanence? Or do they just kind of like develop it apart from our like education and apart from our, our, our parenting collaboration? So he did, he did three rounds of research with these kids with isolated variables and then he changed a couple things. So first round, he brings all, one at a time, he brings kids into this lab room and he puts a blindfold on himself on James Russell. And they, they would just ask the kids one question every round of research. They would just ask him one question. In the first round, he puts the blindfold on and he says, can you see me? Can you see me? And 89% of kids said, no. Can't see you. Second round of research, they pull, pull the same kids in one by one and put the blindfolds on the kid. And then James Russell would ask, can I see you? 
because they have the blindfold on. So it's just flipping the, reason, the, the game around. Can I see you? Same thing, 89%. The same kids who believed it worked the other way, they said, no, you can't see me. They really believe that putting a blindfold on gave you some kind of like superhuman ability to just be invisible. You just put something on. It reminds me of that movie Big Daddy where they, they got the glasses, you know, and he, he tells them, put the glasses on the kid and you're invisible in public. They put the blindfold on and they actually think they're invisible. Here's the third round. This might frustrate some of you. It's okay. It's, it's like ruining magic for kids. But here's the third round. The third round, James Russell would invite an assistant, a lab assistant, into uh, the experiment. And they would put the blindfold around the lab assistant's eyes. And then James Russell would be playing peekaboo with the lab assistant. And the child would be like a third-party observer of the interaction. They would just be watching. And so James Russell would ask the kid, they put the blindfold on the lab assistant, and he would ask the kid, can I see him? Can I see him? And 93% of kids said, yes, you can see him. And they, they, they developed, I mean, he theorizes, there's people who disagree, but they, they, his theory was that they, he taught them object permanence by making them a third-party observer. I'm fascinated still by like the six or seven percent of kids who looked at him, look at the, the lab assistant and say, can I see him? And they're like, nope, <laughs> nope. <laughs> Neither can I. See who? See who? Who's in here? See who? <laughs> almost all of those kids, almost all those kids, this is the gym, almost all those kids had the humility to learn, to develop, to change, to see the world differently, to receive, listen, to receive progressive revelation. A few, a few were already too proud to learn, to change, to adjust. You can't see him? I can't either. This is the way the world is. You cover your eyes, it's game over. You can't do that. A few were already locked in. You see, early age children don't have the propensity to be intellectually proud. Because if there is one thing that they understand, it's that they don't understand all that much. That's why kids can go for hours and hours and hours with nonstop questions. Landon is hitting this spot where it's just question and question and question. You like almost can't drive anymore with him in the back seat. It's just question after question after question. What is a toilet? Why do toilets exist? Why do people go to the bathroom? Why does the water go down when you flush it? Where does the water go? Show me where the water goes. Can I take a bath in the toilet? It seems a lot more fun, like a water slide. Bathtubs are dumb. Why are bathtubs dumb? Tell me why, 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 why? It is a child's commitment to learning, coming from an awareness that they don't understand everything, and there's more to learn, more to see, more to experience. But it's kids, it's children, fundamentally with a curiosity, filled with curiosity, that Jesus says this about. Let the little children come to me and do not hinder them, for to such belongs the kingdom. Truly I tell you, unless you change and become like children, you cannot inherit the kingdom. You will never enter the kingdom. You see, when we grow up, when we become mature adults, when we really start to develop, we can start to settle into our limited knowledge, our limited understanding, our small knowledge and understanding. 
And, our, and curiosity and questions become symbols. Any, any openness can become symbols to weakness, vulnerability, insecurity, immaturity. And our pride, the more, we, the more we grow, the more we develop, the more we learn, our pride begins to strangle our ability to discover. It starts to strangle our ability to receive and internalize new revelation. Do you understand? You get to a place where you actually see Jesus not with progressive revelation, but with static revelation. You've learned all there is to know about Jesus. And your relationship with Jesus be, be, begins to be a relationship with not a real person who, who there's always more to learn more about, but, but with some static historical figure that you already understand, you fully understand, you get it. You can't receive anything else. There's nothing new to receive. French philosopher Voltaire once said, you cannot learn what you think you already know. And with age comes a self-perception that we already know everything, and therefore, we cannot learn anything. We cannot receive anything new. We cannot receive progressive revelation, new revelation, fresh revelation about Jesus, about ourselves, about God, about the world, about the kingdom. The symptom of adulthood, pride in knowledge. Pride in knowledge, that's how Paul says it. It will destroy your relationship with Jesus. Pride in your own knowledge, in your own understanding. Because pride in your knowledge is the antithesis of progressive revelation. Pride in our knowledge is like standing in James Russell's Cambridge laboratory arguing that the man wearing the blindfold really is invisible. It's being content with our own ignorance, satisfied with a minuscule understanding. And this is the, be I mean, the best way that I, think, uh, that I think Jesus exposed it, invited us into it, is just these words in John 16 when he's sitting with his disciples in the upper room he, and he's kind of in instructing them and he's preparing for the them for life without him. He's about to go to the cross and he's preparing them for, for, for what life will be like and for, 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 for what's coming for them. And he says this thing in John 16. I have much more to say to you. I have much more to say to you. More than you can now bear. But when the Spirit of truth comes, He will guide you into all the truth. I have so, you don't, there's so much you don't understand. I have so much more to tell you, to share with you. But you, you literally can't take it right now. You can't bear it right now. And I'm sending you the spirit of truth to guide you into all truth. I'm sending you my helper to actually deliver that fresh revelation to you every single day. To learn more, to take more, to receive more, to understand me more, God more, yourself more. But you can't bear it right now. The escape hatch from our intellectual pride is to internalize that truth that we never completely know Jesus. He, he is always going to surprise us. He is always going to elude our, 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 our little simple boxes of him that we try to place him in. There is always more to know about him, more to learn, more to receive from him. He is both constantly revealing himself to us if we notice him, and at the same time, constantly eluding our quick and easy attempts to understand him or box him into a certain category or perception or camp. He is the Messiah, the suffering servant, the transcendent one, incarnate, elusive, humble, and in the end, he is the Lord. He is the Lord. 
And Jesus immediately follows this internalizing of that great revelation by Peter with a deeper dose of what it means to follow him. You see, every new surprise about Jesus, every new thing that he shares with us, every, every fresh view that we receive from him of ourselves, of him, every fresh revelation in, the, in, in our progress is immediately trailed, closely trailed by that lingering question, then who am I? What does it mean to follow you? Progressive revelation about Jesus walks hand in hand with progressive implications for what it means for my life as a follower. Every single new thing. Any redefinition to the nature of the Messiah necessitates an immediate redefinition to our understanding of what it means to follow him. And I don't think it's any coincidence that hand in hand with the first instance of divine revelation from the lips of Peter comes the first instance of the image of a cross from the lips of Jesus. That this new revelation, this new thing, it's almost like Jesus is, is almost waiting. Are they ready for that? Are they ready to hear that? Are they ready to, to, to hear about what's coming? And what's coming not just for me, but for them. I don't think they're ready yet. I don't think they can bear that. I don't think they can, they can continue under that. And the moment that this revelation is exposed, that this is what they really think, who do you think I am? And this comes out, I think they're ready. I think they're ready to receive this, to hear this, to walk in this with me. Salvation is to lose your life, lose your life for Jesus and for his purpose and cause, not to preserve it, not, 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 not to protect it, to pursue comfort or safety. It is to give your life away. And salvation is about an embracing of the shame of God, not inheriting the honor of this world. Life with Him is a total surrender of our preoccupation with the acquisition of wealth and status and resources and power. It is a giving away of that view of life and surrendering all of who we are, all of our desires, all of how we see ourselves, all of what we think about the world to Jesus as the Lord and maker of who we are and who we are becoming. And whoever refuses the suffering and the shame of God at the same time relinquishes the honor of God. <laughs> to pursue honor the way this world shapes it, forms it, you will be ashamed of Jesus. The way that this world understands honor and the pursuit of honor. And if you, you can have honor in this life, that's fine. You can inherit honor in this life, but you give away the honor of eternity. It's an invitation to walk in, live in, carry, experience the shame of the cross. Are we a people who carry that cross, who take up our crosses daily? I mean, what does that even mean? I was just thinking this week that that term, that terminology, I've heard that terminology, this is my cross to bear. This is my daily cross that, I, that God has given me and I carry. I've heard that applied to like a million different things. I just think in my life, in my understanding of that terminology and how people use it, I just think it's been, it, it applies to just about anything difficult or hard. Any, any level of like sacrifice or suffering that we would embrace. And I just don't know that that's really what he's trying to say. It implies maybe something deeper. 
grief or depression? Is that what it means to take up your cross daily, to, to, to walk in grief? And, and that's hard. I'm not trying to say that that's not hard to walk and to experience ongoing grief and depression, but then to label it and to think this is just the cross that God has me to bear, to walk in, to experience, to, to take up. I think it's more than that. Resisting habitual sin pattern, having a view of morality and having a view of righteousness and trying to pursue righteousness and having a couple areas of your life where you struggle against your flesh and then actually thinking, well, fighting against my flesh in this area is just the cross that I've had to bear. It's just the cross that God has given me to take up and to walk with Him. I think it's more than that. Referencing chronic disease or pain, having like constant back pain or something, and just thinking, this is the cross I've been given to bear. This is the cross God has for me to walk in, to follow Him. I think it's more than that. Having to live with and relate with and, and coexist with unrelenting enemies or unrelenting relational strife or, 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 or some person that you just don't really like but you for some reason have to just exist with every single day, whatever, it's a coworker, a friend, a neighbor. Just think this is the cross God has given me to have to carry, to walk with this person is so difficult. I just think it's more than that. I think it's more than that. I mean, if you could believe it, I was in a church a few months ago and I was walking down one of the hallways and in the hallway they had this, um, they had this poster in the hallway of like an American soldier holding an assault rifle and it had this verse at the bottom take up your cross and give away your life and you'll gain it lose your life for me and for my sake and you'll gain it I just don't think he's referring to like national goals here like national defense here I don't know I just don't I think it's more than that I think it's more than that you see Jesus was not crucified because he was sad Jesus did not have to carry a cross because he was sad. He didn't have to carry a cross because he had to self-deny his sinful habits or to embrace chronic disease or in pursuit of national goals or even to pay for our sins. Of course, of course he did that. Of course he was part of that. Of course, in the sovereign plan of God, there had to be some kind of atonement. But the Romans and the Jewish leaders didn't hand him over to die because they had to create an atonement for sin. The reason he was handed over, the reason he had to take up a cross, walk with a cross, walk to his own bloody, public, shameful crucifixion is because he relentlessly preached the kingdom. It was the reason he had to walk in and get taken over. It was the reason that they felt constantly threatened by him. Because the reordering of the world under the reign of God was happening in his midst. And the world hated him for it. He was ultimately crucified because he wouldn't stop proclaiming the kingdom in resistance to the world's way and order. And to share in that cross for you and for me, for us to actually walk in the, walk in the, in the shadow of that cross, to pick up that cross, to pick up that burden and walk with him, has very little to do with ongoing grief or depression or resisting temptation or preserving, persevering chronic pain or disease. We pick up our cross by picking up the mission of the kingdom. The embodiment, the proclamation, and the declaration of the kingdom of God with Him and enduring a daily cross as the world brings assault and personal and systemic and social violence upon that way, that way of the kingdom that we step into. It's important to remember that the cross was employed by Roman authorities more often than not, almost exclusively, for, for people who rebelled the regime, people who were resistors, partially to punish them, but also partially to make examples of them so that people who were trying to rebel or resist would cease, would stop. It was a public way to protect their regime. So the cross was not only, I, I'm, it is an emblem of suffering. It is an example of suffering. It is a stepping into for us suffering. But it's more than that. It is an emblem of resistance. 
To take up our, our cross is not to just take up a willingness to suffer for Jesus and his cause. To pick up our cross is a willing to resist, to step into the kingdom resistance of the way of this world. The combat between two kingdoms in this world. Carrying the cross is both a commitment to suffer with Jesus, to enter the shame and the folly of Jesus, but also, and maybe even primarily, to identify with resistance of the kingdom of God in this world. I was just thinking so much, on, on just thinking about this text, and, and, and first I was listening this week to that, auto, that, that, not auto, but that biography of Dietrich Bonhoeffer, and just thinking about the life of Dietrich Bonhoeffer, this incredible uh, a German, you know, uh, well, he wasn't actually German, but this, this incredible pastor, this Presbyterian pastor, who actually resisted the Third Reich, resisted the, the power and the regime of Nazi Germany, and their commitment to actually eradicating Jewish people from the face of the planet and Bonhoeffer's commitment to, to hide, to, to, to join the resistance, to care for, to come alongside, to advocate for the Jewish people all the way to his own death, all the way to his own death, to resist in the way of the kingdom, the way of this world, to resist. And in his book, The Cost of Discipleship, just this line, but how is the church to know? How is the church to know what kind of cross is meant for her? How is the church to know what kind of cross is meant for her? She will find out as soon as she begins to follow her Lord and to share in his life. You don't really need to answer for yourself what it means to take up the, your cross, what it means to follow in the wake of Jesus carrying a cross toward suffering. You don't have to decide for yourself. You don't have to like come up with that yourself, what it means to do that. You will find out the more and the more and the deeper that you surrender your life to share in His, to share in His life now. And He'll expose it. You'll see it. You'll taste it. You'll know it. You'll start carrying it. Because every single day, He will reveal to you more about Himself and carrying you deeper into the shame, the servanthood, and the suffering of the resistance of the kingdom in this world. And listen, listen. This is the good news. This is the good news. That the thing that you, in your harboring of your life, in, the, in trying to gain the whole world yourself, the th in, 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 in trying to, to acquire power or status or wealth or anything like that, self-preservation and comfort and security and all this, what you're trying to gain, the thing that you're trying to gain, life that is truly life, life that is abundant, you just can't get it that way. It does not come to you that way. You can't secure it that way. But if you just function to give it away, just, just give away the wholeness of your life, you'll step into something so much more. You, yeah, I'm not telling you you're going to step into say all the things that you want. You're not going to step into safety and comfort and privilege and power and all this kind of stuff. You're just going to step into something much, much better, deeper desires that you haven't even tapped into. You're gonna, he's going to lead you into a life that is everlasting in joy, in eternity, in love, in servanthood, in the honor of the kingdom. You'll step into it. But not, not, not while you're holding on to your not, not life, not, not while you're trying to grab everything, not while you're trying to protect yourself. 
But if you surrender to him, he's a good master. He's a good king. He, 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 he loves you. He's going to actually do in his sovereign will. And he's actually going to lead you into a life that is everlasting, that you could never even create, never even experience on your own. That same, that same man, Dietrich Bonhoeffer, this one of, one of my one of my favorite quotes that like anchored so much of my life. When Christ calls a man or a woman, he bids them come and die. He bids them come and die. A worship team come forward. I just want to finish with this, this final idea, this final invitation. So who is this Jesus? This elusive, surprising, patient, challenging, powerful, loving, suffering man. This is the implicit invitation to, of Jesus to every single audience throughout time of this story and throughout future time of this story. Every single audience who receives, hears, reads this story, the invitation jumping, emerging from the text to you is who do you say that I am? Who do you say I am? Not the people around you, not your friends, not, your, not, not, not even your leaders or the people that influence you, and certainly not Peter. I'm not talking about Peter anymore. Who do you say that I am? You. And ironically, Peter makes a declaration that Jesus is the Messiah. You are God's Messiah. You are the Christ. And immediately, Jesus gives them a word which implies that he is so much more than just a Messiah. His immediate next words expose that he is so much more than just a Messiah. A, a Messiah doesn't ask for your whole life. A Messiah does not invite you to follow him in suffering and in shame. A Messiah doesn't ask you to forfeit all of the world and its goods, but a Lord does, a King does. A Lord who has all authority in heaven and earth invested in him, he does, he does have that right. The right to your whole life. The right to your whole existence. And Peter makes this true, first time, amazing declaration. That Jesus is, is, is Messiah, He's Savior, He's Christ. And at the same time, immediately Jesus replies with more revelation. More to know, more to learn, more of Him. Luke is the only one out of the gospel writers to include that one word. Just to include this one word, he's the only one where he says to take up your cross daily. He's the only one to include this last little word daily, to do it every single day. And I think it's because every single day we decide, every single day you and I, we decide. There are moments every single day where we decide about Jesus. We decide if Jesus is the Lord. If we, if we decide every single day, to whom will I surrender the goods of my life? All of who I am, to whom do I surrender as Lord? Every single day you're going to be faced with decisions. When he calls us into things that challenge our deepest fears, our deepest insecurities, and he calls us into things that are immediately going to put us in places that, 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 that force us to face and deal with our deepest fears and insecurities, who is the Lord? 
Are your fears and your insecurities, do they rule your life? Do they own your life? Or does He, who is the Lord? Who is the Lord? To whom will you surrender your life? When the people we are called to serve and to love and to walk with for the sake of the kingdom of God, when they drain us or they turn away or they betray us or they walk away or they hurt us, who is the Lord? Every single time somebody like betrays you or walks away, you, you invest such a, such a massive portion of your life into loving and caring for and serving to somebody and they turn away and they, 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 they ridicule you or, or betray you or hurt you. Every single time that happens, you're going to sit back and you're going to think, why am I doing this? This, this microchurch is terrible. My microchurch is terrible. I can't, I can't influence people like God, God isn't giving favor to this thing that I do but listen if he's called you who is the Lord to whom do you surrender because if you walk away from that dream if you walk away from that calling you've surrendered your life to that person who's betrayed you you've given away your life to not wanting the experience of that pain when we're called back into vul- to a vulnerable place of confession and repentance and you don't want to do that you don't want to be vulnerable with people you don't want to repent you don't want to turn away there's so much like weakness and vulnerability but who is the lord who is the lord you or him who is the lord when our hope is failing when we're tired when we're weary of the resistance of this world against the way of the kingdom who is the lord who is the Lord? To whom will you surrender? To whom will you be faithful? I was reminded this week of just this, the, this verse from Paul in Acts 20, 24. It's the, it's, for a long time, it's been a verse of my life that I'd love to embody as much as often as I could that he, he says when he's, he's aiming his life toward going and his missionary journeys toward Jerusalem and he knows going toward Jerusalem, which he feels called to do, he knows there's only going to be violence and persecution and suffering and prison and maybe even death there. And the, 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 the elders are trying to tell him, don't do that, that's really dumb. We love you, we want you, we want you to stay with us. Please don't go to Jerusalem. It's only going to end terribly. We're going to lose you forever. Please don't do that. And he says to them, I listen, I consider my life worth nothing to me. My only aim is to finish the race and complete the task the Lord Jesus has given me. It is the only thing of real substance and value to me. Is to, to, to stay faithful, to stay surrendered to this thing which God has called and owned my life and purchased me for. I consider my life no value to me. Nothing to me. And if I could just, I was just trying to think like, how has this, this week when I was reading this text and just thinking, this is the word for me, and and so maybe it's a word for our people, and just thinking, how has this been hard for me? How has this been difficult for me? How have I wrestled with this lately? I just wanted to be, for just for a moment, if you just allow me a little bit of space to, to, to be open, to be vulnerable with you, I have to confess that my wife and I have been experiencing a lot, a lot of difficult homesickness for a couple weeks. And I know, listen, uh, please don't think like we're leaving or like we hate, we don't like you or something like that. That's not what this is. I love you. We love you. We love being here. We love the city. I can't believe I get to serve you people, but I just miss, I just miss home. I miss my family. That's normal. That's totally natural. Please don't reach out to me, invite me over to dinner and care for me or something like that. That's, I mean, if you want to do that, that's fine. We would love that. We feel very loved by this community. I just want to tell you 
There are mornings when I wake up and I just miss my, my, my people, the people that I spent a decade with investing my life in. I just miss them. There's mornings I wake up and I just miss my neighborhood, like, like the, the, the life of our neighborhood, the community of our neighborhood that we spent so much time in. There's, there's mornings I wake up and I just miss my house, my terrible, horrible house, the, the house that I invested so much blood, sweat, and tears in. The plumbing is still terrible, and I just miss my house. And, and I miss Panera across the street from my house and the people at Panera that I, that I, that I created this little family and community with and their kids and, and all this. I just, there's just stuff back at home that I miss. But every single time I wake up, every single morning that I wake up and there's something about home that I miss, especially our family, like being able to just walk across the street and see family, whatever. Every single time I wake up and I feel this, these feelings of homelessness or homesickness or my, my, my wife feels these feelings of when we're on a drive and she's just you know, just wrestling with homesickness. Every single time, we just have to look at each other and say, who is the Lord? To whom do we submit and surrender? These feelings are normal. We totally get it. But listen, we can't, we can't surrender the operation of our life to these feelings. Just because we feel homesickness one time doesn't mean that we have to just like move back and this is hard or whatever. Listen, we love you. We feel called to you. I want to give this season of my life to you to serve you. And I feel so much joy from that. But listen, every single time I wake up, I just have to surrender myself and say, who is the Lord? Who is the Lord? Who owns my life? He does. He does. He does. He does. And yes, it's hard, but I think he knows that it's hard. And it's going to get less hard because you guys are so cool. <laughs> we love you so much. And this is going to start to feel more like home over time because we trust him. Because he is the Lord. Those same disciples, those same people that he's sitting with right now, that he's sharing this moment with right now. And even when he tells them, I'm going to get betrayed. I'm going to get handed over by the, by the elders and the scribes. I'm going to get handed over. I'm going to die. I'm literally going to die. And I'm asking you to carry this cross with me. I'm asking you to step into it with me. Later in, in, in that upper room, just the, the night before he's betrayed, he's sitting with them, he's serving them, he's washing his feet, he's loving them. He's preparing them for this, this future that they have. And on the night he was betrayed, he took that bread at the table and he broke it. He said, this is my body, broken for you. And when you eat it, you remember me. You remember that I've purchased you. I've purchased you. I've adopted you into a family. And now I, 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 I'm pleading. I'm pleading for you to give away your life for me and for my sake. That you would have it. To step into this shame that you would step into later. Eternal glory with me and the Father. In the same way, he took the cup. He poured it out saying, this is the new covenant in my blood. Shed for the forgiveness of sin. When you drink it, you drink it in remembrance of me. Guys, when you come to the table this morning, when you come to receive these elements this morning, would you just bring with you, just bring with you to the table all those, all those fears, all that betrayal, all that insecurity, all that pain, and would you just entrust it to Christ Jesus? All, every, all the suffering and the, and the shame that you might step into in the way of the kingdom, would you bring it to Christ Jesus and just say, I, I just entrust this to you and you're still the Lord. I will never give these things power over me and my life. 
I give myself away to you, Lord. And then step away from the table and just receive life from him. Receive the authority, the leadership, the power that he has been entrusted by the Father and he's now giving you. This is the moment where we, we remember that purchasing, that trading. When you're ready, the elements given for you. Come and receive when you're ready.